0: From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, high-tech versus high-technique in the Himalayan Cataract Project.
1: When the surgeon finishes one case, the nurse hands off the dirty instruments, slides the stand with the... New sterile instruments forward. Meanwhile, assistants move the patient forward into position, and the surgeon preps the eye one more time with beta 9, puts a sterile eye drape over, puts it in a speculum, and by the time the speculum is inserted, the next sterile tray has been moved up, and the surgery is ready to continue.
0: First, this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Tabin declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of a scene From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. What is your preferred technique for cataract extraction? Okay, what is your preferred technique without a phacoemulsification machine? Without automated irrigation aspiration? This is the challenge faced every day in Nepal by the Himalayan Cataract Project. And as Donald Rumsfeld might have said... You take out cataracts with the technology you have, not the technology you want. But how much of a compromise is it to do away with FACO, and can a technique be developed to make manual cataract extraction efficient, predictable, and even elegant? Jeffrey Tabin, co-director of the Himalayan Cataract Project, answers with a resounding yes, and I'm delighted to have him as my guest today. How significant a problem is cataract in the developing world?
1: It's an enormous problem. Cataracts are are the leading cause of blindness in our world. 50% of the blindness in the world is caused by completely treatable cataracts. Currently, there are approximately 20 million people, according to the World Health Organization, who are blind from cataracts. And when I say blind, I should probably... that that's by the world health organization definition in america we give benefits to someone who can see the second line down on the eye chart if you are able to see 2200 and nothing more you're considered legally blind in america The World Health Organization is a lot more stringent. Their definition of blindness is 10-400, which means you're unable to see the big letter, the big E on the eye chart, with either eye at instead of 20 feet at 10 feet. And that's really functional vision where you can't perform the acts of daily living and life is very difficult. If you go by the American definition of legal blindness, which the World Health Organization would just say is severely visually impaired, all of a sudden that number will go well over 50 to 80 million people. And one other problem, Josh, is that as the population ages uh, and expands over the next 20 years, the projections are that the number of people who are blind and functionally unable to live their lives will double in the next 20 years.
0: Aside from the cost barrier of the emulsification machine itself, are there other problems with emulsification in the developing world?
1: Yeah, no, so emulsification is very difficult in the developing world, not only because of the cost of the upkeep of the machines and the additional tubing and the increased cost for a foldable lens. But these lenses are very difficult to FACO. You know, you have a lens where the capsule's fused to the, uh, to the nucleus, or you have a hypermature lens with an absolute rock-hard 5-plus nucleus and no cortex at all, they're really fraught with complications, and particularly in places where there are no trained vitreoretinal retinal surgeons. The complication rate is enormous. So what we did in our study was we looked at a sort of alleged master of state-of-the-art FACO, uh, David Chang, coming to do a uh, essentially Iron Chef uh, FACO duel with uh, Sandek Ruit, uh, my partner in the Himalayan Cataract Project, who has been really uh, uh, at the forefront of developing better and more effective small incision sutureless non-FACO techniques.
0: One of the points that you made in the paper too was that in addition to the cost of the actual FACO unit and the barriers that, that you that you mentioned with very dense lenses, with uh, not having foldable lenses, is, is that FACOs have very high costs of consumables.
1: Yes, you, you have the, the tubing, the upkeep, the FACO tips and uh, It's a very high cost of consumables with FACO relative to the small incision sutureless
0: cataract technique. What alternatives exist to FACO emulsification?
1: Well, initially, the principal alternative was a large incision extracapsular surgery with sutures. But the problem with that is that induces a fair amount of astigmatism, You have uh, risks of things like expulsive hemorrhages, it's a larger wound, there's a higher risk of wound complications, and with sutures, it takes uh, quite a bit more time. So what we've been working on over the last uh, 10 years is developing a non-FACO technique with a small incision that's gentle and very fast.
0: What is SICS?
1: what SICS is is uh, sutureless manual non-FACO uh, cataract extraction. And the essence is a sutureless self-sealing tunnel incision. And the uh, incision was developed by Michael Blumenthal was the first to describe it from Israel. And we've made modifications on Professor Blumenthal's original technique and you make a tunnel incision that is self-sealing from the internal lip that at the scleral entrance is smaller, usually around 6 to 7 millimeters, but with a larger internal lip opening at approximately 10 millimeters or 11 millimeters even into the clear cornea. We then hydrate the, we open the capsular bag and use just uh, fluid forces and basically irrigate the uh, nucleus out of the capsular bag into the anterior chamber, and then uh, irrigate again only with fluid forces, the nucleus into the uh, tunnel incision and out of the eye. We then uh, remove any residual cortex with irrigation and aspiration with the Simcoe cannula, and then place uh, a uh, lens into the capsular bag.
0: What's the sort of lens that you're putting in?
1: In most cases, we use a one-piece PMMA lens that's manufactured at the Togunga Eye Center in Kathmandu, Nepal. And our manufacturing cost for that lens is approximately $4. There's an equally high-quality one-piece PMMA lens. that's manufactured for a very similar price uh, at the Irvin Eye Hospital System in Madurai, India.
0: Has SICS been studied as a uh, technique before? I wouldn't say it's been studied. It's
1: certainly been described... And the efficacy has been described. We were the first, myself and Dr. Ruit, to uh, to publish our particular technique. Uh, Michael Blumenthal was the first to uh, publish an SICS technique. Uh, several other people, uh, Peter Kansas in the United States, and uh, uh, also Eddie Alfonso down at Baskin Palmer, have worked on different techniques of basically fecal uh, fracture where they use a small incision and uh, break the nucleus into pieces in the anterior chamber and then remove it from the eye. Uh, These are slightly more cumbersome and slower steps and with the absolute hard nucleus have some of the same problems that uh, FACO has. And so we worked to develop the technique to remove the entire nucleus still through a small incision and in a much gentler way for the eye that is also more cost effective, and that we also don't need uh, um, extensive viscoelastic use. And uh, experienced surgeons, both at our center in Nepal and uh, and Eye Hospital, uh, routinely are able to perform over 100 cases in a day.
0: Jeff, can I have you describe the design of your study? Okay, well, one other
1: just last little thing I want to mention, Josh, sure. is that we also, in addition to having the you know, small incision sutureless technique, which is extremely efficient. We've also worked to develop concomitantly uh, efficient means of cataract surgery delivery through proper use of uh, you know paramedical personnel, having no one doing a step that someone with lesser skills could do, and having generally four to six uh, support staff for each surgeon performing surgery. Uh, Our design for our study was fairly simple to see how, you know, we already knew that the speed of surgery was much faster, that the cost was much lower, but the big question was are the outcomes similar and is sacral emulsification a technique that provides a much better, quicker, and more stable visual recovery than SSICS. So what we did was we, uh, through some generous support from AMO, in terms of equipment, were able to bring essentially the exact same operating room that David Chang, who is a professor of uh, surgery at uh, UC San Francisco, has at his uh, uh, private surgery center, and then to have Dr. Chang and Dr. Ruit uh, perform a randomized trial where patients are completely randomized from the same advanced cataract population in Nepal to either phacoemulsification or SSICS. And what we wanted to look at were, one, the efficiency of the surgery, two, the cost of the surgery, but most importantly, the immediate visual recovery, the late visual recovery, and the induced astigmatism.
0: Can you tell me about the patients involved in this study? Uh, Sure. The patients were uh, pre-screened at
1: a screening camp outside of Kathmandu. And we found uh, we had 108 uh, patients who were uh, with advanced cataracts in uh, a typical Nepal screening population. The average age was uh, in the late 60s. Uh, slightly more female than male. About two-thirds of the patients were illiterate. And they uh, um, were then uh, very carefully checked to, as best as possible, rule out any other significant ocular disease. We performed a uh, B-scan on uh, the patients where there was no view of the fundus possible. We did careful fundus exams and uh, checked for other systemic diseases such as diabetes It could be any complication. And we arrived at 108 patients who were uh, severely visually impaired from, uh, as best we could tell, only a cataract. These uh, patients were then randomized. They would uh, reach into a hat and pull out a ball, and those with a red ball would go to Dr. Chang's table, those with a white ball would go to Dr. Ruit's table, and the next patient would go to the opposite table. We tried to keep the parameters exactly uh, the same. Dr. Chang, again, had every uh, uh, piece of equipment, viscoelastic, and the same phacoemulsification machine he uses in San Francisco, and Dr. Ruit did our uh, standard small incision sutureless cataract surgery.
0: Jeff, if I were to visit the clinic in Nepal, what, what would I say And can I get you to talk about the alternating right-eye and left-eye patients?
1: In the trial, we didn't just operate right-eye, left-eye, because we were not looking at speed. We were um, doing the controlled trial, so it was whatever patient came up. When we do our standard uh, high-volume day, uh, we would have the patients come in, and we have essentially an assembly line production. We have paramedical personnel who put in the dilating drops. We also put uh, antibiotic ointment onto the lashes and uh, lids, and we cut the lashes and then put a fluoroquinolone eye drop in the eye. The patients then receive their dilating drops, and at the time of their dilation, They receive a uh, drop of local anesthetic and a prep with uh, beta They then move along the assembly line and are uh, brought to our anesthetists, who are ophthalmic assistants. They're ophthalmic assistants with usually two years of training um, after high school. Uh, And they then... uh, specialize in ophthalmic anesthesia and just give the blocks. They give peribulbar blocks, and at the time of peribulbar block, the uh, assistant also makes sure we're getting uh, our maximum dilation. And after the block, they perform another full uh, beta 9 prep and put some 5% povidine iodine into the fornix. The patients then have a uh, balanced weight placed over their eye to soften the eye, and then they move along the assembly line holding a betadine-soaked gauze over their eye with mild pressure until they're ready to go to the operating room. We then have an assistant that walks the patient in and lies the patient. We operate on a long uh, table with the surgeon in the middle, and right-eye patients will have the, uh, their feet extended uh, in one direction and the left eye patients extended in the other. And the surgeon will be operating on the right eye patient and there will be a left eye patient essentially uh, in position for surgery when the previous case finishes. We then uh, have a, an assistant again give another prep and the patient is sitting with their eye prepped with beta 9 approximately 6 inches away from the previous patient. Uh, The nurse is handing off the instruments to the ophthalmologist from a uh, line of Mayo trays, and we have a line of uh, of surgical sets that are basically all in position. Every three cases, we have a person run the the surgical instruments to an autoclave to uh, uh, sterilize those instruments, and we have a constant flow of new, Uh, instruments being sterilely placed so that when the surgeon finishes one case, the nurse hands off the dirty instruments, slides the stand with the new sterile instruments forward. Meanwhile, assistants move the patient forward into position, and the surgeon preps the eye one more time with betadine, puts a sterile eye drape over puts it in a speculum, and by the time the speculum's inserted, the next sterile tray has been moved up and the surgery is ready to continue. So the turnover time between surgery and our high-volume days is approximately one minute. And with that, our uh, you know very experienced surgeons are able to perform approximately 12 cases per hour. The Aravind uh, uh, Eye Hospital System, which is one of our partner organizations, uh has a very similar flow and system, except they have two uh, tables, and the surgeon will be operating at one table, and the operating microscope is positioned in between. And when they finish their case, they swing the microscope over to the adjacent table and turn their stool, so they're facing to the right. They now just turn and face the opposite way, and they are actually even slightly more efficient than we are, that they have the patient prep draped with a speculum in uh, when the surgeon uh, turns to face the next patient. And they're also able to uh, uh, routinely maintain a uh, flow of approximately 12 cases per hour.
0: What FACO technique was used?
1: Uh, Well, Dr. Chang would vary it a little bit based on the... uh, density of the cataract, but essentially his phaco-chop technique. He writes quite a bit about uh, phaco-chop, and he uh, generally would use vision blue to stain the capsule, perform a continuous pterocapsulorexis, then his hydrodissection, and then remove the nucleus with a phaco-chop technique.
0: How long does an SICS cataract surgery take?
1: Uh, again, the surgery takes approximately... Uh, four minutes, four to five minutes, and it's absolutely reproducible with um, uh, case after case it's uh, essentially the same for every case. The steps don't really vary if it's an absolute hard nucleus or a soft nucleus very occasionally there'll be a posterior subcapsular cataract that will require a little more time for the irrigation and aspiration, but in general our uh, Um, experienced surgeons are doing them in about four to five minutes.
0: How long was the follow-up?
1: We now have one-year follow-up. And our paper that's being published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology is up through our six-month
0: follow-up. What were the results of your study?
1: Well, the results are that at one day, the SSICS uh, was significantly better in terms of visual acuity. There was... Considerably less uh, corneal edema. Uh, the faecal emulsification times were considerably longer uh, in terms of uh, these absolute nuclei. And there was an average uh, increase in corneal uh, thickness at uh, one day uh, of about 70 microns in the fecal emulsification cases versus around 25 microns in the sutural small incision cases. By post-op day five, that had pretty much balanced out and there was really very little difference. There was no statistical difference in the uncorrected acuity. At uh, post-op day number one, our uh, visual acuity uh, for SSICS approximately uh, uh, 80% of our patients were seeing uh, 20, 60 or better uncorrected versus around uh, uh, 55% of the FACO patients. By one week, this had, uh, this had more or less balanced out. Uh, actually, our exact numbers, I have them now. Post-up day one, we had uh, 90% uh, of our SSICS patients seeing 20, 60 or better versus 75% with FACO. We had uh, uh, 70% versus 50% seeing 20, 40 or better and 50% versus 30% seeing 20, 30 or better. By uh, one week, there was no difference. At yep. six weeks, three months, six months and one year, There were no statistical difference in either corrected or uncorrected uh, best acuity if you titrate to the 2030 level. However, there was by three months significant uh, number of patients in the FACO group who were significantly better uh, outcome at the 2025 and especially at the 2020 level, both corrected and uncorrected.
0: What about since then? Since
1: then, at one year, it's remained just about the same. There's no difference in the number of patients seeing 2040 or 2030 uncorrected or corrected. And there is a slight advantage to the FACO uh, when titrated to 2020, uh, and we think that's mainly from posterior capsule opacity. The the two advantages that we think are uh, present for the best acuity, Um, And we had uh, 90, uh, we had 100% follow-up at one day, one week, and one month. Uh, We had approximately uh, 86% follow-up at one year. And at one year's follow-up, both results are fantastic. Um, There was a slight increase in the number of patients requiring uh, uh, YAG capsulotomy, I think it was six versus two uh, at one year.
0: But still, those are very small numbers.
1: Very small numbers. And the visual acuity, there was we rated the capsule opacity in all cases, and uh, the mild decrease in visual acuity we think is correlated to uh, slightly better uh, uh, cortical cleanup with the phacal uh, emulsification procedure.
0: What adverse events were observed?
1: Uh, virtually none. In 54 cases, and these were you know, absolute cataracts, and the majority of them, you know, Morgagnian cataracts. Um, there was one case of capsule rupture, and that was in um, uh, the phacal emulsification group. There were no cases of capsule rupture or vitreous loss in the SSICS, and uh, there were a few transient hyphemas in the. Uh, SSICS group, which is a finding that we see occasionally, uh, particularly when the absolute lenses uh, have to come out through a smallish pupil, um, bringing the nucleus through the pupil can cause small sphincter tears, and there can also occasionally be a small uh, uh, amount of blood that comes from the tunnel. Uh, These all resolve spontaneously within two days. Other than that, there were no adverse uh, events in either group.
0: How did corneal edema compare?
1: It was significantly uh, greater in the uh, phacoemulsification group. As I mentioned, we measured the uh, increase in thickness. We did pachymetry before and after uh, each surgery. And at post-op day one, there was an average increase of 70 microns in the phaco group. And that was the reason why the one-day acuities were considerably better with the small incision sutureless cataracts.
0: This surgery employs a large sutureless wound. How did the patients do in terms of post-operative cylinder?
1: They do fantastically. We we make the wound, we begin about uh, one and a half millimeters back on the sclera and we tunnel about one and a half millimeters into clear cornea. So it's about a three millimeter tunnel. And uh, we found when we were doing superior incisions that we were inducing about 1.8 diopters of cylinder at six months. It would drift to almost two diopters at one year. And starting about a year ago, we, or more, almost two years ago, we switched doing 98% of our cases temporally. The temporal incision, we found that we have about a half diopter of induced astigmatism, and it's only about uh, 0.68 diopters at one year.
0: In terms of the percentage of patients reaching 20, 30 or better vision, uh, the FACO group did did a little bit better than the SICS group. What do you think that the etiology was of the lower? I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say at 2030, it was approximately the same. It only became statistically significant at 2025 and greater.
0: It was really pretty comparable.
1: Well, at 2020, we had a uh, significant number larger uh, in the patient population who achieved 2020 uncorrected and 2020 with, uh, with correction. In the FACO group. In the FACO group. And I, my thoughts on it are, one, that there is a slightly better uh, cleanup of the cortical material with uh, David Chang's FACO technique. He does uh, a wonderful cortical cleaving hydrodissection and was very meticulous in his cortical cleanup with the uh, SICS because... You need to bring the enormous lenses out from behind the iris. There's a mild amount of iris trauma as the lens passes through the pupillary aperture. And in some cases, the pupil constricts a little, and there can be a little bit of uh, peripheral cortex left. The uh, second reason we think is possibly some subtle CME. We did not do any uh, OCP or any other measures to evaluate, and by clinical exam there was no CME evident, but there may be some slight uh, increase in retinal uh, uh, swelling from the increased uh, inflammation caused by bringing the large lens out from behind the iris.
0: Jeff, I went to your website, which is a great website, CureBlindness.org, and has this picture of you hanging from a mountain. Can you talk about that? <laughs>
1: well, I, I actually started, uh, my first career was as a mountain guide. I was a pretty fanatical rock climber through, uh, through high school and college and spent a few years as a uh, climbing bum and then a few years as a professional, uh, both sponsored and also a, a professional climber as a guide. And uh, I was, I still believe I'm the only ophthalmologist to have summited Mount Everest. And I initially went to Nepal as a general doctor, uh, as a climber. Uh, when I finished medical school, I was climbing in Nepal, and I worked as a general doctor in Nepal. And that's where I saw the miracle of cataract surgery. And I was working in a village where it was just accepted that you get old, your hair turns white, your eye turns white, and then you die. And I watched a foreign team come in and do cataract surgery, and I was absolutely blown away. These people were just waiting to die, and all of a sudden they were restored to life. And it was a real miracle. Everything else, the big problems I was facing were really uh, issues of public health, problems with bad water, uh, poor hygiene, poor diet. And all of a sudden I saw a miracle where a doctor could make a difference, And I began formulating ideas, even then, of how we could develop a system of education and local training to deliver high-quality cataract surgery. Then I came back to the States, uh, completed my my ophthalmology residency and a corneal and external disease fellowship. And when I went back to uh, Nepal, originally under the auspices of the Fred Hollows Foundation in Australia, Uh, I was very fortunate that they put me together with Dr. Sondek Ruit, who absolutely amazed me. He uh, had by then developed this wonderful, very gentle technique of extracapsular surgery just using fluidics with a capsule rupture rate of probably one in a thousand with these absolute uh, capsules. And, you know, I've been taught in my residency to use vitreous pressure and, you know, a muscle hook. And I watched Dr. Rui, who was just so smooth and just floated the lenses out of the eye and had already developed this wonderful assembly line technique for high-volume care as well as a technique for wonderful sterilization and very low infection and complication rate. And I said, Dr. Rui, how can I help? And after my stint with the Fred Hollis Foundation, I stayed and worked with Dr. Ruit. I remember our first uh, cataract camp, Josh, we went to, we did 224 surgeries in three days. This was still using sutures. Uh, sounds impressive until you get the breakdown that Dr. Ruit did 221, 201 while well, I did 23. And I had to call him over to my table about a half dozen times for help. And that was the beginning of the evolution of this technique, which really is so gentle, just using fluidics, basically the same principle as hydro dissection, hydro dissecting the nucleus uh, out of the capsular bag and then hydro expressing it out of the eye, using no pressure whatsoever other than just uh, irrigation and very gentle flow of water. And uh, the technique slowly evolved, at that time he was doing a double running baseball stitch. And then after uh, Michael Blumenthal came to uh, Nepal and gave a demonstration of his mini-nuke technique and his incision, doctor really began figuring out a way to adapt uh, the surgery that he was doing with this gentle irrigation to Michael Blumenthal's uh, self-sealing wound. And then, as I said, it's continued to evolve in uh, It's very frustrating for me because I work a few months a year in Nepal with Dr. Rui, and every time I master his technique of last year, he's already moved on to something a little slicker and a little bit better. And we've moved from the superior approach to the temporal approach. Uh, He's now worked out a wonderful way to perform a capsulorexis in probably 90% of the cases. uh, When we did a trial with David Chang, we were using a V capsulotomy, with a smooth tear on the top, which is extremely easy in terms of expressing the nucleus out of the capsular bag, extremely safe, and very easy to perform with absolute white cataracts, with more Gagnon cataracts, with cataracts with a lot of lens milk. But um, after the trial, when we realized that the cortical cleanup was not quite as good, uh, Dr. Ruit's been working on perfecting a technique to irrigate the lens out of the capsular bag, even uh, in the largest lenses with a capsular axis.
0: Jeff, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, the only little thing is I think that this is a wonderful technique for any comprehensive ophthalmologist armamentarium, because you know, even in America, about uh, once or twice a year, I am faced with a patient with an absolute cataract, and uh, you know, I do. Uh, Facor them, and they all use Vision Blue and uh, you know about five vials of viscoelastic, and take 30, 40 minutes to do the case. And then they end up with uh, uh, corneal edema and uh, uh, a little bit of a slow visual recovery. And I kind of often will kick myself and say, you know, if I would have done my Nepal technique, the visual outcome the first day would be so much better. The overall outcome really is essentially comparable, it's much safer in these, uh, you know, absolute cataracts and obviously much, much quicker. The, um, and then occasionally you do have cataracts that really are non facalable And in a very rare instance where one does have to have uh, some type of extracapsular technique and uh, lenses where the uh, uh, nucleus is fully fused to a fibrotic uh, calcific capsule, uh... And you have an absolute sort of five-plus black uh... you know uh... cataract nigra or in a more Gagnean cataract where the uh... uh... hard disk has fallen inferiorly and you just have a uh... an absolute you know a, f- a fusion of the anterior and posterior uh... uh... lens capsules away from where the nucleus has fallen uh, all those cases are very easy and very safe uh, with uh, this uh, technique. So it's both, uh, for the developing world, a much more cost-effective and faster uh, way to deliver high-quality cataract care to uh, large volumes, but also in the rare instance that there is a cataract that is not amenable to phacoemulsification emulsification or extremely difficult for phacoemulsification, emulsification, it's a wonderful uh, technique to have in your bag of tricks.
0: Well, great, Jeff. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Jeffrey Tabin is professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah School of Medicine in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's also co director of the Himalayan Cataract Project. His paper, a prospective randomized clinical trial of fake emulsification versus manual sutureless small incision. Extracapsular cataract surgery in Nepal is in press in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Tabin or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 20 8275 or Skype JayoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As seen from here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.